Hello everyone, welcome to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's great to have you with us today as we continue our wonderful study of the book of Luke. Today we are in Luke chapter 19. We will be looking at verses 28 through 40, which is the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. He's finished his ministry that has extended all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. He has moved his way down across the Jordan, went into Perea, came back across the Jordan into Jericho. That's where we saw him heal a blind beggar. And then also there's the account of Zacchaeus. We looked at that. And now we see him coming into Jerusalem. And this will be the final week, which we normally talk about as being Passion Week. He is coming in, and we only have a week to go. On Friday, he will be crucified, and then will rise again on Sunday. And so, this is a packed filled week. It has so many events. As I've said before, and as I said in the email that I sent out this week, again, it's just like the rapids before Niagara Falls. And when you go farther up, the rapids are fairly calm. They're moving along slowly. The closer you get to the falls, they really pick up steam. They really become a rushing rapids. Well, that's what's happening here in the book of Luke as we come now to this final week, which is packed with all kinds of events, incidents, so on and so forth. I kind of figure as I look at this, that starting here in chapter 19, verse 28, and moving all the way through chapter 24, which is the end of the book, it probably will take us till June 1st for us to make our way through this material and see everything that Luke has written for us under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, all the wonderful things that God will show to us about this particular week and all the events that are there. So it will take us quite some time to work our way through all of this. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Luke chapter 19, or if you want to follow along on the screen, that's fine as well. And we will be looking at these verses in depth in order to see what is happening here as now Jesus will enter in through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. So beginning in verse 28, it says, And after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Let's stop right there. This begins, like I said, the final week before the crucifixion. Jesus has reached the final destination of his ministry 
here on earth, which is Jerusalem. It will be here that he will die on the cross for the sins of mankind. Everything that he has been doing for the past three or so years has all led up to this point, up to this week, which will culminate in the crucifixion and then the resurrection. He has known all the way along that this is his destiny, that this is why he came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. He knows that his destination has been suffering, suffering on a cross, giving himself as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of mankind. So it is a journey that has begun, began some three years ago. On the next slide, you'll see a map that I have, and I have mapped out where he's been, just so we know. And I've labeled each of these particular segments of his ministry, number one, number two, number three, and number four. So it starts in number one. He's, of course, he's born in Bethlehem, spends some early years there, moves up to Nazareth, and there we picked up the story in Luke and his ministry there. Of course, Cana, which is right above it, he performed his first miracle there, the changing of water into wine. Then you move into kind of the third phase, which is the area around the Sea of Galilee. We spent a good amount of time, many chapters, taking a look at him headquartering out of Capernaum and places like Magdala and and so on, all uh, around the Sea of Galilee. He ministered, just performed miracle after miracle after miracle. He's out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and calms the storm. All these things that he performed before not only his disciples, but before those who were followers of his, showing to them, indeed, he was the Messiah. He then leaves that area up around the Sea of Galilee, makes his way down through Perea, and then back across the Jordan again, and into Jericho, which you'll see there. And now, eventually, he's moving from Jericho, and he's coming into Jerusalem. So this has been his three-year ministry that he has spent in this whole time. He has proven himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that he indeed is the Messiah. The things that he did, the miracles he performed, healings, casting out of demons, all these things that he did shows that he has command over all, over nature, over people, over disease, over Satan. It all proves that he is the Messiah. He not only did that through all these miracles and actions, but then his teaching, the wisdom that he had, the depth at which he could go into the Old Testament and relay those things to the people, all proved the fact that he's the Messiah. So having accomplished that, now he comes to Jerusalem and he comes to die. 
He comes to die for the sins of the world. So it tells us here in verse 29, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, as we would know it, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So Jesus travels here to two small villages. The one, Bethany, will be his headquarters for the next week. You will see him going into Jerusalem from Bethany. Various events will take place. In the evening, he'll go back out to Bethany again and stay. Now, what's in Bethany? Well, it's the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So you've got two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then you've got a brother, Lazarus. Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and so Jesus is out there. He is staying with this family and then comes into Jerusalem during the day for these few days that he has left. So let's trace on a map what is going to happen in this passage. So you'll see this slide that shows he's starting way over on the right. It says that he came to Bethphage and to Bethany. And so he's going to, so to speak, drop his suitcases in Bethany at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's home. And he is going to move then up Bethphage and then come down. You can see the red line that is drawn. You see the Mount of Olives. And he is going to come down, crest the, the mountain that's there, the Mount of Olives, and then he'll come down that mountain, cross over the Kidron Valley, and then come up into Jerusalem. So it's about a... Bethany is located about two miles east of Jerusalem. So he will come down, he will cross over that Kidron Valley, he will come up, and he will enter in through the eastern gate. So that kind of gives us an idea of what Jesus is doing here. Next slide just is a sketch, a rendering of perhaps what Bethany looked very similar to back in the first century. Again, very small village, not many people located on the other side of the Mount of Olives. If you're here in Bethany, you cannot see Jerusalem from here. You would have to go up and over the top of the Mount of Olives, and then you will be able to see Jerusalem at that point. One thing I, I want to point out here, I put on here a Passion Week calendar, so to speak, that shows Jesus doing various things. This is put out by Faith Bible Church, and I think did a good job of listing all of these things so that you can see what's taking place when. So this starts over, for instance, on Sunday. Now, this might be a little bit different than what we're used to. I do think it fits the chronology the best. So you'll notice on Sunday, it begins on the 9th, Jesus arrived in Bethany yesterday, which would be on Saturday, okay? And on Sunday, the crowds and Jesus and Lazarus in Bethany, which upset the Jewish leaders. So on Sunday, the crowds visit Jesus and Lazarus in Bethany. People come out, and I think they came out. Once Jesus got to Bethany, and that word got into the people in Jerusalem, 
there was an excitement that built, and I think they came pouring out of the eastern gate and went up the hill, went up the mountain, came down, and came into Bethany. Now, you'll have to remember that, uh, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, you're probably, you're probably, you probably got somewheres around 2 million people that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover will be on Friday. So they're there. They've traveled there. You got a lot of people. There are estimates that perhaps there were as many as a couple hundred thousand people that came out, that poured out of that gate, that came up to Bethany to see Jesus and to see Lazarus and the fact that this is someone who has been raised from the dead. So they wanted to see the evidence and the proof of it all. Now it upset, as we said here, the Jewish leaders. In fact, they wanted to not only put Jesus to death, but to put Lazarus to death as well, because he's evidence of somebody that Jesus raised from the dead, so they would like to do away with him. Now, when you come to Monday then, typically you would select on that day, on a typical week of Passover, you would select the sacrificial lamb. And so on this particular calendar, You'll notice that I've got not only sacrificial lamb, which is highlighted there in red, but also when you drop down something else that I put in a red triangle, and that is that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. So typically we talk about Jesus doing this and entering into Jerusalem, and we call that Palm Sunday. If you really study the events and you back it all up and you take all the gospels you put it all together it probably happened not on sunday it happened on monday on monday is when he actually went into jerusalem and if you just kind of clock that all out figure it all out it makes sense because typically on a monday you would select your sacrificial lamb. Well, in him entering into Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem on that day, he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who will give himself for the sins of mankind. He will die on Friday. And so it's just something for you to consider. It's not a great big deal whether you believe that, you know, it was on Sunday or on Monday. I'm just uh, kind of putting it out there for you to see. John MacArthur, for instance, believes that it was on Monday as well, as well as there are others that think that the chronology fits better on a Palm Monday rather than a Palm Sunday. But that's something for you to investigate and look at further if you would like to. And that gives you, uh, that calendar gives you something you can always go back to now and look at as we're moving our way through these last chapters and this last week as to what's going to be happening each of these given days. We see here, still in verse 29 here, where he sent two of the disciples. We will see here that Jesus is in total control of the situation. 
as always, the sovereignty of God prevails over every situation. Again, there's nothing that happens here, but that what God doesn't grant it, that he doesn't bring it about, that is his, that's what it means to be God, that you are over all, that you are sovereign over all. And Jesus is going to show us here in a very significant way, in a very detailed way, just showing to us that indeed he is in charge and knows what's going on, and he understands by putting this all together that things are going to line up just perfectly for the cross and for him rising from the dead. So Jesus will sovereignly control here, uh, number one, the timing of all of this taking place, which is going to be a fulfillment. It's going to fulfill Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So just looking at that passage, you'll remember it, and we'll go through all of it. We've been through it many times. But just highlighting some things in this passage that Jesus is fulfilling in this week. You'll notice in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. We're talking about Israel here. 70 weeks, a week, and I won't go into a big, long, lengthy explanation, but a week equals seven years. So if you've got 70 weeks times seven years, you've got a total of 490 years. All right, so what this is laying out for us in these four verses here. It's laying out for us a prophecy that is so absolutely exact, it's right down to the day of when something will take place in the future. So we'll go to the diagram in just a minute, and I'll show you this, but I'm just pointing this out here so that you understand it. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so we're getting real precise here because we know when this all begins, and it begins with the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes. So we know the beginning point here, if we're talking about that this amount has been decreed, 70 weeks, 490 years, then we can we have a starting point, okay? Verse 26, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, all right? There's a reference to the fact that he is going to die after the 62 weeks. And then when we get down to verse 27, which we spent a lot of time in when we went through the book of Revelation, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. All right, so you've got the final week of these 70 weeks, and that final week is the seven years, one week again, seven years, it's the seven years of the tribulation. All right, he, meaning the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Not only Israel, but those nations surrounding it to bring about peace. And then, of course, it relays to us in the middle of the week. Uh, he double-crosses Israel, puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and so on. And then the abomination of desolation takes place. 
in the middle of the tribulation period and so on. All right, now let's go to the next slide to the chart itself, and you'll see this laid out here. Looks complicated. I'm just putting it here. You can spend time studying it, but again, 70 weeks, it's really 77s, total of 490 years. If you go way over to the left, you'll see March 14th, 445 BC. We know that that's when the decree from Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, that that decree was given. So we are, can be very precise on the day. Then there will be seven weeks, there will be 62 weeks, and then there will be a gap, and then there will be one week. And of course, the one week is the tribulation. So what we're concerned about here is the first seven weeks, seven times seven would be 49 years, and in 49 years, sure as a world, uh, rebuilding was complete of Jerusalem, and so you've got that, and then you've got 62 weeks, which will take place. And so if you take from the beginning of the decree that was given, and it's 69 weeks until the Messiah will be cut off, that's a total of 173,880 days. And if you take a calendar, and a calendar based on 360 days a year, which was the Jewish calendar, if you add that number of days to March 14th, 445 BC, it'll put you exactly at April 6th, 32 AD. And that was the time when Christ enters Jerusalem as King and Messiah, lighting the fuse of Passion Week. This is when he will be cut off. This is the beginning of it. And so this is a very precise prophecy. Jesus knows the prophecy. Jesus knows the timeline. He knows exactly what's uh, taking place here. And so he is fulfilling that timeline. The gap that occurs there is the gap of the church age, which we're in now. That church age will end when the tribulation begins, the last week of these 70 weeks. So it all totally fits together, and it's right down to the precise day when this will occur. So the timing is under the control of God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is... He's fulfilling the Daniel 9, 24 to 27 prophecy. He also fulfills the fact that Christ is dying on Friday, the Passover. Okay, Jesus knows the Passover is coming. He is moving towards that. And Jesus being our sacrificial lamb will die on the Friday when thousands of sacrificial lambs would be sacrificed at the Passover on that Friday. So all of this timing is perfect because he is coming at the sacrificial lamb. He is the one that's going to die on Friday. And so everything is going to lead up to that time. And he's in control of that time. Now, John chapter 12, verse 1 
tells us, Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, what's significant about that passage? Well, it tells us exactly when Jesus came to Bethany, and that was six days before the Passover. So, we can kind of take these things, like I said, you can put them all together to get a chronology of what takes place and when. All right, Jesus will also choose not only the timing, but he will choose the place. The place where this is going to take place in this passage is the eastern gate of Jerusalem. This is where he's going to come down the Mount of Olives, cross over the Kidron Valley, come up and enter Jerusalem through that eastern gate. So he is choosing that as well. Number three is the entrance. How is he going to come? Well, he's going to ride on a donkey, and that's what we're talking about here. When he sends these two disciples ahead to Jerusalem, this is a very significant thing because it shows how detailed this is and how much the Lord Jesus is in charge of all the events and all the details that are going to lead up to his death. And then fourth is the response. And so here you have Israel responding in total joy and celebration and so on over their Messiah uh, who is out in Bethany and they come out to see him and then to lead him or follow him anyway into Jerusalem. You also see the response of the Pharisees here because these are the ones along with the Romans who are going to put him to death. and so. That response as well is all timed. It's all there because these are the ones who will indeed bring about the death of Christ. And again, all of this is planned out. There's nothing here that might go wrong, that might change. It all will follow the pattern that God has set out for it. So it begins with his sending on ahead two of his disciples. All right, so now verses 30 through 35. Saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Quite a number of verses given over to this detail, and I think there's a, there's a, a reason for that, and that is because when you take a look at what Jesus is going to go through, and you wonder, can this possibly be God's will of the suffering and everything that Jesus will go through, and whatever? Yeah, this is all part of the plan of God. And just as much as this, even this little cult being available and Jesus directing them to this cult, uh, just as much as that's directed, a small detail like this, 
so is Pilate and the Romans and everyone that's involved in putting Jesus to death. That is all planned as well. We'll see that as we work our way through and some of the verses that talk about that. So I want you to note here the two attributes of Jesus being displayed. Number one is his omniscience. Okay, omniscience means he is all-knowing. He knows everything. And here's Jesus, and he is talking about a colt. Go into the village ahead of you, and there as you enter, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Now, how would he know that? He's never been there. He's never seen the colt, whatever. This is part of his omniscience that he is demonstrating here. He has the knowledge of the colt. And number two, his omnipotence is being displayed here because omnipotence means all-powerful. So the, he has also the power which guarantees the colt will be used. I mean, all of this is being orchestrated, and it's being orchestrated by the power of God. So he not only knows about the colt, but he has the power to bring this all about and that the colt would be used. So, he makes the statement, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, well, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. No surprises here. And as they were untying the colt, sure as a world, its owners said to them, I mean, they're wondering, these guys walk in. It doesn't even record here that they said, we'd like to take your colt here, or may we take your colt? They just walk in, and they begin to untie it. And the owners say, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, because the Lord has need of it. And apparently that is all that was needed. Now, they no doubt knew about the Lord. They knew about the Messiah. They knew his background, what he had done his power, his healings, everything that he'd done. And they may well have just thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, go ahead and take him. If if he needs it, that's just fine with us. Or they they just let it go. They just, you know, again, they're being superseded by the power of God. So there was no questioning. There was no hesitation. There was no, 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 you guys can't do that. You can't take this. That's stealing. There was none of that. The Lord has need of it. End of story. And so they were able to do that. So they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, this is all a fulfillment, again, of prophecy. On the next slide, you'll see Zechariah. I've got Zechariah 9.9 here, and this is prophesied that this is what would happen to the Messiah. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, and now notice, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay? So it's even more precise than just a donkey. We're talking about a colt. The younger one, the one that has been given birth to and is now growing up and is old enough to hold somebody. I think in Matthew it tells 
that also the mother donkey was there along with the colt. And they were to get the colt, which they did. Realize that this prophecy was given 500 years earlier. I mean, it's just amazing. One of the wonderful, great proofs of the authority and the truthfulness of the Bible is Bible prophecy. The prophecies that were made, like this one, 500 years earlier, and here it's taking place, just as it said it would in Zechariah 9.9. I want you to notice out of this prophecy, note the word humble. Note the word humble. He came humble and mounted on a donkey. I mean, think about this. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is someone who you would expect he would be coming. This is his coronation day. This is him being the king. And yet, how is he coming? He's coming in all humility. He's coming mounted on a donkey, on a colt. You know, typically, if you go back and you take a look at what was called a Roman triumph, particularly somebody who came back from a war and had won a war and so on. They put on a great big huge parade for someone like this, for the triumph of this general, this Roman general. So the Roman general led the parade and he led it on a large white stallion. I mean, there's no donkey involved here. And then he was followed. He'd be at the front of the parade and he was followed by his trophies, so to speak. Trophies being that which he had conquered in the battle. And so behind him would be perhaps kings he had captured, soldiers he had captured. There would be on wagons, there would be money and jewels that were taken, and they were displayed. And all of this was to bring glory to the Roman general that was leading the parade on this big white stallion. And then behind all of that, it's interesting, would be the army that fought in the battle under this Roman general. They would be put at the back. The most prominent thing that you would want to put at the front in order to extol the qualities and the glory of this Roman general, you would put the things that he had acquired in the battle. Those are the most important things. The army is the army. But what did he accomplish? And they would be put right after him in the parade. So that would be a Roman triumph. Uh, I want to also read to you what a coronation involved in ancient times in the first century. Uh, listen to this. In ancient times, the coronation of a monarch was quite a happening. Now, this is different than what we're talking about this Roman triumph for a Roman general. You get the idea that when they did that, it was a big deal. Well, what do you do when you're going to, there's going to be a coronation of a monarch? Well, it was quite a happening. It involved a great display of splendor and pageantry. The king would be dressed in the most expensive robes and jewels. He would be driven through his capital city in an ornate carriage drawn by stately horses. Accompanying him would be those of royalty and foreign dignitaries, and following that would be a large regime of the nation's finest soldiers. 
Musicians would play and sing, and the crowds would break into spontaneous choruses of praise to their sovereign. Every part of the ceremony was designed to highlight the majesty, glory, power, and dignity of the king. So there you have a couple of examples of, in the first century, a triumph or a coronation and what a big deal it was and how, how much it was there in order to exalt the one that was either the king or the general. And here you've got, what's so ironic is here you've got the king of kings, the lord of lords, actually the creator of the entire universe, and he's coming in all humility. He's coming on the back of a donkey. It just is uh, quite ironic, but that's, that's the life that he lived. That's the way Jesus came. He lived a humble life. And even in this time when he is being, he's being crowned as the king by Israel, it is still a very humble time. And so verse 36 through verse 38 says, As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it says that they, as he was going along, riding on this colt, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Now, why were they doing that? Because in that culture, in that society, if you spread your coats on the road, it was a sign of your submission to the one that you were honoring, that you were submitting. You would submit by putting your coat down. It was like you were putting yourself down and relinquishing your will to the will of the king that was riding on this colt. And so that's why they were doing, that's why they spread their coats down. Once they came over, you'll notice it says here, verse 37, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So here they are at the peak. Once they come over the peak of the Mount of Olives, they erupt in praise. You'll notice it here. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. All right. And they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, this whole thing just kind of crescendos here. They erupt in praise. They're thinking, they're, they've seen it. They know Jesus and all he's done. They knew the miracles that he had performed. Many of those who were touched by Jesus were no doubt in the crowd that were out there to meet him and to follow him on into Jerusalem. I mean, we got beggars, we got sons, we got daughters, we got Lazarus, Zacchaeus. We've got all these individuals during these three years that Jesus has touched their lives. And as a result, they are all there praising Jesus for what he has done. And as we said, there's perhaps 
over 200,000. There are estimates that there might have been as many as 200,000 coming down the mountainside. A lot of people. You've got 2 million in Jerusalem at this time who have come for the Passover, and they're already there. And so when they hear Jesus is out in Bethany, they open the gates, the eastern gates, and they a couple hundred thousand of them go out there, which just totally fills that entire hillside or mountainside of the Mount of Olives. And they come to Bethany, and here he is, and now he's coming down the mountain, and he's going to cross the Kidron, and he's going to go up through the eastern gate. So you can just imagine what they're saying. They're saying, this is it. The kingdom will be built. Rome will be defeated. We will be set free. He can do it. He is the king. He's proven that. He's shown all the power that he has to be able to practically wipe out disease in Israel as he has performed thousands and thousands of healings and proven that he indeed is God. He is indeed the Messiah. So they're thinking, what a great time. He shows up. He's going to go into Jerusalem. This is the Passover. What a great time to announce now that he is going to establish the kingdom. He's going to defeat the Romans. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. He's going to give us peace, which we have not had. The crowd is just ecstatic. I mean, they might have been, in certain respects, out of control as they are celebrating Jesus because they're anticipating that he's coming now to establish the kingdom. They know there's something special about him. They've seen that, but as a result, they just feel that they need to celebrate this and anticipate that this is going to be quite a, an occurrence. If you go over, you get, you get a kind of a sense of it. I want to share a couple of passages. Mark 11, 8 through 10, it says, And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches. That's where we get, you know, palm branches, palm Sunday, so on branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now notice, verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is what they're shouting. Blessed is the coming kingdom. This is it. They believe that Jesus is there now. If he's truly the Messiah, he's going to establish the kingdom for us. So they've got all this anticipation, all this eagerness to see Jesus do this. And you can see right here in Mark 11, where Mark gives his account of what we're looking at in Luke, that this is what they're shouting. They're shouting about the coming kingdom. You've got to remember, if they, if they remember back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over the kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, you see, the Jews would pick and choose out of the Old Testament what they wanted to follow and believe. And so, they believed, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that when the Messiah comes, the government will be on his shoulders. He will come. He will bring peace. 
he will establish justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So they thought, when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to establish. And here he is, and he's proven himself to be the Messiah by all the miracles, everything that he's done. So we can fully well expect he is now going to establish the kingdom of God here on this earth. Uh, just a thing on the gate. I've got a couple of uh, photos here in these slides, next two slides. You'll see the gate up there, the eastern gate, which faces east out of the wall of Jerusalem. The gate, just by the way, was sealed by Islamic leaders to prevent a future Messiah from entering. That gate is sealed today. A number of years ago, the Islamic leaders, they sealed that gate up so that they understood that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come through that gate. They didn't want that to happen. They sealed it up. They not only sealed it up, but they also, there was a cemetery that was also built in front of the gate to prevent the Messiah from coming in. And they put a cemetery there because if he came up and came through that graveyard, he would be declared unclean if he touched any of those graves and so on, and that would make him unclean, and therefore he could not be the Messiah and he would not be recognized as that. So. That's just something about the Eastern Gate. The next slide shows that gate. It's also called the Golden Gate. You can see why, because of the color, especially in the morning when the Eastern sun shines on that gate, and you'll see how goldish it becomes and looks, and therefore got that title, that name. Verses 39 and 40, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So this whole thing is just too much for the Pharisees. You can imagine. You got all these tens of thousands of people, maybe a couple hundred thousand, coming out and crying out that Jesus is the Messiah, Hosanna, all these type of things. And these Pharisees are just going crazy. I mean, they don't know what to do. The crowd is praising Jesus as the Messiah. The crowd is ascribing to Jesus what Jesus does not deserve, and to the Pharisees, that's blasphemy. So they're looking at the crowd, and they're saying, they're ascribing to Jesus the fact that he's the Messiah. He doesn't deserve that, and in fact, that's blasphemy to do that. But the Pharisees want it to stop, okay? But they have no control. How then can Jesus stop maybe 200,000 screaming people? I mean, they can't stop them. How's Jesus going to do it? I mean, there's no crowd control. There's no National Guard. There's no police force that the Pharisees could look at and say, Jesus, you need to, you need to get a hold of the authorities here, and you need to calm this crowd down. I mean, they don't know what to do. But it's interesting that they call upon him. You need to, you need to calm these people down. And, of course, Jesus is not going to do that. So Jesus condemns the Pharisees for what they want for the people to be to keep quiet. That's what, what they want, but Jesus condemns the Pharisees for that thought, for wanting to do that. Jesus is saying, if, if people don't do it, if they don't cry out, if they don't praise me, then the rocks will. Now, I want you to note something very important here, and that is that the whole design of the universe is that Christ be praised. Catch that because it's important. 
And we've gone through this before, and you have to understand, we won't go through all these passages and so on, but God the Father, in the design and the plan in eternity past, decided to give a love gift to his Son, Jesus Christ. And that gift that he would give would end up being, in eternity future, would end up being a redeemed people. A people who would spend eternity in worship and praise of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of history is this redeeming a group of people, a group of people who will die or be raptured, if it's in the church age, they will be raptured, they will be brought into eternity, and they will spend all of eternity worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you've got some Pharisees who come along and they say, you need to stop people from praising you. And you see, that's totally anti of why God created all of this, gave this gift to his son that he might be praised for all of eternity. So the gift of the father to the son is a redeemed people who will spend eternity in worship and praise. And the sad thing is, is that Israel fell silent in a few days and has remained silent to this day. When all of the screaming, when all of the worship and or all of the praise and shouting Hosanna, in just a few days from when this takes place, Israel suddenly falls silent. And they have remained silent to this day, and they will remain silent until you get to the end of the tribulation period. And judgment fell upon Israel, and 40 years later, Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans, by Titus, the Roman general came in and leveled Jerusalem. That was God's judgment upon Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, Israel today, continues to taste of the judgment of God, whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's all the wars, whatever it is, Israel continues to be under suffering because of what they did to the Son of God in putting him to death. That will not change until after the tribulation at the end of the tribulation period. Look at Romans eleven twenty five and 26. It says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That has not happened yet. It will happen in the future. And then it says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. When does that occur? At the end of the tribulation period. And you see the exact description of it in Zechariah 12.10, where it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will come to their senses, so to speak. They will come to repentance. They will be pierced in their hearts when they realize what they have done to the Lord Jesus, that he indeed was the Messiah, that he indeed was the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And when they realize that, 
all of Israel, those living in that time at the end of the tribulation, all of them will be saved and they will enter into the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. So Israel has a future, but right now Israel is silent. And Jesus is saying, if you remain silent, I'm going to get praise. And if it doesn't come from you, I'll even use the rocks, the rocks to praise me. Quite a, uh, quite a statement. Well, anyway, application. Just want to give you three applications here as we close. Number one, God is always in control. Not just the big picture, but the small details. The details of even a cult tied up someplace. God was in control of that. God's in control of all of the details of your life. So what do we do? We just roll with the details. We just keep trusting God. God, you brought this in. I didn't expect it. I didn't think this was going to going to take place, but you know what? I believe you're in control. So therefore, I just keep trusting you. I keep believing you. I keep glorifying you because I understand that you are omniscient. You know everything. You are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. There's no detail that's going to slip away from you or going to be too big that you don't know about it or can't handle it. You're bringing everything to pass, just as you have decreed. Number two, if the crowd is doing it, beware. It is probably wrong. I was going to seminary, Bev, and I attended a church, Central Bible Church. And I remember Pastor Custis on one Sunday said this exact same thing. And it stuck with me ever since that time. Because we can take a look at a crowd and we can see that everybody is doing it. It's the old thing, you know, that we often hear from teenagers. Well, everybody's doing it. Well, the crowd here was doing it, but the crowd didn't understand really what they were doing because in a few short days, they're totally going to turn on the Lord Jesus and they're going to be crying out, crucify him. So on one day, perhaps on Monday, they are saying Hosanna to the king. And on Thursday, they're saying crucify him. So always beware when you see what's going on. And people in crowds often go off in a direction and it may be in the wrong direction. Just because it's a lot of people, because there's a lot of numbers involved, doesn't mean that it's right. Now, is it right to praise God, as they were doing, sure it was. But again, I'm looking at the long run here in just a couple of days. This is totally going to flip. This is totally going to turn. And so in our lives, just be careful. If everybody's doing it, it may be wrong. Because the direction of the human race is always to gravitate towards sin and that which is wrong. And the majority of people, The gate is broad that leads to destruction, and many will find it and go that way. Narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. So, just something to be aware of. Number three, if you as an individual fall silent 
from praising and extolling the person of Christ, God will move on to somebody else, or to even something like stones that get to experience the joy. God's doing that with Israel. God did that with Israel. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has taken Israel and has, uh, they are the natural branches in the trunk. He has removed them. He has taken the wild branches, as they're called, which are the Gentiles, and he has grafted them into the trunk. So right now, God is using this thing called the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. So there's proof that if you do not praise God, God will choose something else to praise Him. If you fail to do it, God will select somebody else to do it. But He will be praised. The Lord Jesus will be exalted. And it's a tragedy that you give that over to even something like stones. Because when you do praise, you do experience joy. So maybe you don't experience it, But if it goes to stones and they're praising him, they're the ones that will experience the joy. Well, our time is gone, so let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this wonderful passage of Scripture. The triumphal entry of your Son into Jerusalem. And all the fulfillment of prophecy and just everything that took place. And there's so many things that we've looked at today. The details of how your son was in control, uh, the the uh, cult, that whole aspect of it. It's just amazing to us how everything falls together for this week now, which will end in the death of your son and in his resurrection. So I just pray you'll teach us as we continue to go through this in the weeks and months ahead of this very important week in history, a week which not only changed history in the world, but changed lives and continues to change lives today. So we're grateful to you that we can study it, that we have your word, that we have the Holy Spirit who teaches us as we do study. And we just pray for your blessing to be upon us as we dig down deep to understand these things and to apply them to our lives. For we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. Amen.